Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. I was a little late on that one, but was, oh well. I was a little early. So we're in Indiana still. We are in Indiana. Uh, before I jump into my true crime story, I did find some weird laws that the state of Indiana has on the books. You do know this is my favorite part, right? Yes, yes, I do. There's a lot of weird laws. Some of them were ones we've seen before. You know, lots of rules about horses, how to ride horses, where horses should go. But I decided to forego the horse laws today. Okay, so no more horse laws. But Indiana still has some pretty good old weird laws. For example, at liquor stores in Indiana, they cannot sell milk or any cold sodas. You can only sell room temperature sodas or I guess pop if you want to say it like a true Indiana. That's true, yeah. I was like, that's very odd. It is weird because it's like soda, pop, and soda pop. Mm-hmm. And then in parts of Europe, it's fizzy juice. What? Uh, in Scotland, I am told that it's a ginger. No matter what you want, it's a ginger. Oh, that's like in Texas. Everything's a Coke. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Down south, everything's a freaking Coke. Uh, this one I thought was super weird. I've never heard of a law like this. But in Indiana... You can get out of paying a dependent's medical care bill by praying for them. What? Yep. <laughs> so technically, according to the laws in Indiana, if you present your case well enough to a judge, you can make the defense that your prayers are treatment and that you don't have to pay those medical bills. Um, okay, everyone from moving to Indiana, raise your hand. <laughs> <laughs> so Eden, have you ever been hypnotized? Um, no. Well, I tried to get hypnotized. It didn't work on me. Okay, me too. I can't relax enough. Me too. <laughs> I'm too high strung for hypnosis to work. <laughs> Type A all the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you do live in Indiana and you want to say try hypnosis to maybe stop yourself from smoking or to lose weight, you can't just go see a hypnotist. You have to get a doctor's prescription. What? Yep. Damn. Isn't, isn't that weird? That's some like HMO shit. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get a referral. Yeah. Um, and this one I thought was, on the face of it, not that weird. But then as I dug deeper into why this law was on the books, it got real weird real quick. Okay. I like when it gets real weird real quick. Don't we all? I couldn't say that very well, but oh, I. <laughs> so in South Bend, Indiana, you cannot smoke a cigarette while walking down the street. Specifically... You cannot force a monkey to smoke a cigarette with you while you walk down the street. God damn it. My whole act is ruined now. <laughs> so I was like, what the hell prompted them to yes. pass a law about this? And apparently in 1923, a man was caught walking down the street with his pet monkey. He was smoking a cigarette and his monkey was doing the same. That is kind of crazy. So in order to cite the man for animal abuse, they had to update the law and change it. So no matter how bad your monkey's nick fit might be, you cannot give him that cigarette. But can you really change? A I mean, I guess you can. But it just seems like if it's already done and you change the law after the fact, the law should not take effect well, makes, retroactively. Well, it makes me wonder if like maybe he was a nuisance with his monkey walking down the street smoking cigarettes. Maybe the cigarettes. monkey was burning people with cigarettes. <laughs> Who knows? But I thought that was really weird because a couple articles were like, you can't smoke a cigarette and walk it down the street in South Bend. And one of them's like, no, no, you can't do it with a monkey. Yeah. So that are, that's the uh, weird laws that I found in Indiana for yeah. this week. I think they were pretty good. That is pretty good, especially the last one. <laughs> <laughs> you know that um, three people in my family quit smoking by going to a hypnotist. Hmm. Yeah. That's why I wanted to try it, but I can't be hypnotized. 
Did their monkeys also quit smoking? Yes, their monkeys also quit smoking because <laughs> everyone in my family owns monkeys. I knew it. I wish they did. I asked my mom for a monkey when I was a kid and I was like, I'd make it wear a diaper. It's fine. She's like, no, they fling their poo in their assholes. <laughs> I mean, she's not wrong. Yeah, that's true. I agree with their mom on that one. <laughs> so for my true crime story today, we are heading to Laporte, Indiana, which is a city of about 20 2,000 residents today. Okay, that's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It's a good-sized city. It's located in northwestern Indiana. Uh, it's about 12 square miles, and it's part of the larger Chicago, Naperville, Michigan City area. Okay. Um, it's actually, when you look at it on a map, it's very close to Lake Michigan, So, and you can actually ride a train from Laporte to Chicago. Nice. Now, unlike most of Indiana... Laporte operates on central time, again, due to its close relationship with Chicago. The first European settlers came to Laporte in 1832, and soon afterwards, the U.S. government swooped on in and forcibly removed all the local indigenous tribes of course, from this desirable land. Yep. The government then established a federal land office in Laporte, and they sold the land that they had stolen to settlers who wanted to establish homesteads and farms in the area. Okay. So from that... Not so great start. The port grew pretty quickly over the next 20 years. farming community was born. Mm -hmm. Over the next 20 years, uh, over 5,000 residents joined the city. Uh, during that time, the Laporte Medical School, the first medical school in the Midwest, was established in 1842. And the advance, sorry, it's probably pronounced advance. I think it said advance. Yeah. Whatever. That's the Staten Island on me. <laughs> The Advanced Rumley Company, a pioneering producer of many types of agricultural machinery, uh, mostly threshers and large tractors that really powered the uh, agricultural development of the Plains region, is, was established in Laporte in 1852. And it's still there today. It helped drive Laporte to be this manufacturing center in the region. Um, and given Laporte's close proximity to Chicago and South Bend, it became this sort of stable economic region for Indiana. Laporte's also super proud of its history, and it has a large downtown historic district. This historic district include, is included on the National Register of Historic Places. It joined it in 1983. It includes 70 buildings in the city's central business district, and they're all built between 1860 and 1930. Okay. And it has tons of really cool architectural examples of Queen Anne, Romanesque Revival, and that neoclassical architecture you think about when you think about, you know, turn of the century Midwestern oh, yeah. cities. All the fun stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, our tale for today, however, takes place a little ways outside of Laporte on a plot of land that used to be a 40-acre farm homestead. Okay. It was on this homestead that a tragic fatal fire led to the discovery of one of America's first female serial killers. Ooh, I know what you're doing now. A little lady named Belle Gunness. Yep. Belle Gunness was born on a farm in Selbu, Norway, on November 11th, 1859, as Brunhild, Paul's daughter, Strors. I'm so glad that you decided to do this. Yeah. Because I was thinking about it, too. Yeah. So. Belle Gunness is a fantastically interesting story. Yeah. Oh, and I didn't realize that, would you say she's from Norway? Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that Norwegian last names did the same thing that Icelandic ones do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have the patronymic. Yeah. Yeah. So, obviously, with a name like Brynhild, she started to go by the name Belle or Bella very early in her life. Well, yes, because no one wants the other name. No. She migrated to America in 1881 when she was 22 years old. 
She ended up settling down in Chicago, where she met and married a man named Mad Sorensen in 1884. Over the next few years, the couple had four children together and opened a candy shop. Things didn't stay so peachy for Belle for long. Unfortunately, tragedy started to pile up around her. Two of her children died young of a sudden illness. In 1895, the candy shop burned to the ground. And in 1900, the house the family lived in also burned to the ground. Luckily for the Sorensen family, they had insurance claims or insurance policies on both the properties, and they were able to complete insurance claims on them. However, this sudden loss of their home made Mad Sorensen decide that he should really increase his existing life insurance policy in case anything else bad happened to the family. Yeah. So he purchased a brand new, larger policy. On July 30th, 1890, both policies were active. It was the last day for the old policy and the first day for the new larger policy. July 30th, 1890 was also the day that Mad Sorensen would die of a cerebral hemorrhage. Ooh. His wife, Belle, explained that he had come home from work with a headache. She had given him some quinine powder for the pain and told him to lie down and rest. When she checked on him later that evening, she discovered he was dead. Damn. Now, both the insurance policies were in place at the time, so they both paid out. Wow. Totaling $5,000, which is about $145,000 in today's money. That's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. So Belle, now a widow with two small children used the money to leave Chicago and purchase a 40-acre farm just outside of LaPorte, Indiana. In LaPorte, Belle met Peter Gunnis, a fellow Norwegian immigrant and recent widower with two small children of his own. Gunnis was a moderately successful hog farmer and butcher, and he quickly fell in love with the comely Belle and the two married in 1902. But yet again, tragedy would shadow Belle's happiness. Of course. Of course. About a week after the wedding, Peter Gunnis's seventh-month-old daughter died unexpectedly. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. So many dead kids already. Well, what's the turn of the century and, you know, still had high childhood mortality rates. Yeah. Well, my story has a lot of dead children as well, unfortunately. Oh, but cheery. Yeah. So this is, this is officially the unfortunate dead kid episode. Sorry, guys. <laughs> we did not plan this. One thing, though, that is kind of unusual for this time is that adult men don't often die in freak accidents. Yeah. Unfortunately, Peter did. About eight months after their wedding, he was killed when a heavy meat grinder fell off a high shelf and struck him in the head. Damn. Yeah. Talk about freak accident. That's some shit luck. Now, due to like the really weird occurrence of Peter's death, authorities held an inquest. Yeah, I would too. Right? Like, like okay, how often does somebody get killed by meat grinder not often uh, however after the inquest was completed they cleared bell of any involvement and they ruled that his death was indeed accidental and that allowed her to collect his life insurance payout first mistake <laughs> <laughs> you're not wrong so over the next few years bell continued to live on the farm with her surviving three children so two from her marriage to Sorensen and gunnis's young daughter jenny and she's in indiana at this point right Yep, she's yeah. in laporte indiana she also continued Gunnis's hog farm business and would use the help of seasonal farmhands to raise and slaughter and butcher and sell the hogs. See, I would love to have a farm. I know it's a lot of work, mm-hmm. but I would love to have a farm where I could, you know, do everything like myself. Never have to go to the grocery store for many things. I could just grow most of what I eat, you know, on yeah. property. But I don't think that I could ever, ever raise animals for slaughter. I could never do that. Yeah, it's a, it's a very different sort of 
relationship with your food when that happens. Yes. I mean, I don't want to be like, oh, now I'm eating Piggly or whatever I named him, you know? Don't name them. Don't name them. So, I mean, I'd have to have like a neighbor who was a butcher if I was going to do that (laughs) because I just couldn't. Well, it's funny. I had a friend who grew up in Nebraska on on a dairy farm and he, you know, they would eat the animals on the farm. And as an adult, he was a vegetarian. And I'm like, I I totally understand that. I was a vegetarian twice in my life, once for a short time and once for a long time. (laughs) And now I don't think I could ever go back, even though I'm technically kind of Hindu. So I should be a vegetarian, but nah. Well, I worry for your karmic cycle. Yeah, right. I know. (laughs) So Belle's running this hog farm, living her life on the port with her kids. And in 1905, she decides, you know what? It's time to find love again. So she started placing personal ads in Scandinavian language newspapers. I was able to find an example of her typical ad, and it goes as follows. Quote, Comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in Laporte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman, equally well provided, with view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visit. Triflers need not apply. Damn. Yeah. Speaking of Scandinavian um, letters put out there, um, I had a coworker named Sarah who was from Sweden, but she put an ad in the paper when she came over here with a program uh, to go to school that she was like just looking for like odd jobs. And her roommate was also Swedish and on the same program. Mm-hmm. So she wrote like two Swedish girls looking for work, you know, like oh, this thing. And they didn't realize how bad it sounded <laughs> until they got a whole bunch of pervy freaking phone calls. Yeah. yeah. <gasps> they should have added no triflers need not apply. Exactly. That would have saved them so much trouble. So just like your friend, Sarah, Bell's ad also generated a lot of interest. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Well, she had to start with comely. I mean, <laughs> just plant that seed early. It's her own damn fault. Uh, so, so she would get like tons of letters in the mail, like multiple offers from letters from guys hoping to be her eventual husband. Her neighbors started to notice that she would regularly get male visitors. And one of her seasonal farmhands later told the New York Tribune that Bell would keep the visitors' identities concealed, like keep it on the down low, out of concern for her visitors privacy yeah he said quote mrs gunnis received male visitors all the time a different man came nearly every week to stay at the house she'd introduce them as cousins from kansas south dakota wisconsin or from chicago she was always careful to make sure that the children stayed away from her quote-unquote cousins oh mm-hmm. now is indiana considered the midwest yes okay yes so that explains, um, you know, more Scandinavian residents because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's where the settlers all were. Yeah, and that's why she went to Chicago in the first place. So. Yeah. Now, we do have records of some of her replies back to the men who answered her ad. And most of the time, Belle stated that while she was searching for love and romance, she was also looking for a man who would be finan- a financially stable partner and could help her take care of her farm. Always good. I mean, honestly, you got to think of marriage as a freaking... Business, business arrangement yeah right? i mean that's essentially what it was in the beginning anyway so oh yeah and totally and like she's a widow she's twice widowed and i'm sure she's not looking for a guy who's like yeah i can help you on your farm like she wants somebody who has a little bit of money in his pocket so that if anything does happen like and they have more kids she would be able to take care of them yeah seems reasonable now if bell decided that one of her suitors was quote-unquote respectable enough she would ask him to bring money with him on his per- in-person visit in order to show how serious he was with the- his intention to marry her. 
And then they would use that money to start planning the wedding and like finance it. Okay. So this goes on for a couple of years. And in 1907, Bell hires a new farmhand named Ray Lamphere. He immediately moves into the second story room in Bell's farmhouse. And soon the two of them start a strictly sexual affair. Okay. As the months pass, Lamphere eventually falls in love with Bell. But he knew that she would never agree to marry him since he was just her farmhand. Yeah. He grew steadily more and more jealous of all of these suitors who kept showing up at the farm and then would leave Belle after a few days. Great. Yes. Now, Belle continued her physical affair with Lamphere despite finally discovering her ideal match. Oh. Mm-hmm. He was an other Norwegian immigrant, surprise, named and, it seems to be her type. Yeah, it's her type. I, she doesn't really date outside of no. her own country of origin. I mean, it's nice to be able to speak your native language with somebody, That's I guess. That's true. Um, so her, her ideal match was this Norwegian immigrant named Andrew Helgillian. I hope I said that right, because um, it's a very interesting trying to find Norwegian name pronunciations. Now, Andrew Helgillian owned a large wheat farm in South Dakota, and he was pretty successful. Uh, Bell exchanged at least 60 letters with Andrew over the course of 16 months, um, far more than any of her other suitors. Okay. Over the course of their epistolary romance, Bell told Helgillian that he was by far the most true-blooded Norwegian man she'd encountered, not a dud like most of the suitors who showed up at her doorstep. How dare they? Mm-hmm. Wasting her time. She said travelers need not apply. Exactly. So people don't know how to read. People don't know how to listen. <laughs> she eventually urges him to join her in the port she says hey baby sell that farm come meet me but so that we can get married as quickly as possible don't bother telling your relatives like we'll tell them after they get married after we get married it'll be whatever we don't want them interfering we just want to you know let's just be together yeah so andrew hagillian arrives in the port in january of 1908 and when he does bell is over the moon he is perfect and also, she's over Lamphere at this point. She kicks him out and sets the fire hand up in her barn in January. That's ice cold. That, yeah, definitely. Literally ice cold. Literally and figuratively. Uh, Helgillian takes up the accommodations in her house that Lamphere had vacated. And the two start planning their wedding. Almost immediately, they realize that they're going to need some additional finances. A few days after his arrival, the couple visit the First National Bank of Laporte and withdraw $2,800 from Helgillian's accounts, which is basically like $85,000 in today's wow. money. Yeah, like a crap ton of money to start their new life together, quote unquote. Yeah, really? You're going to start one hell of a life. <laughs> this is also right around the time that Bell and Lamphere have an argument that results in Bell straight up firing Lamphere and evicting him from her farm per- permanently. Oh. Now, the topic of the argument was unclear. Some neighbors speculated that Bell owed Lamphere back wages, while others said it was because Lamphere, who was clearly in love with Bell, was totally distraught at Bell's new soon-to-be husband, Helgillian, and clear that you know he had lost out to this new dude. Yeah. Either way, Lamphere was out of a job, heartbroken, and he left the farm. Bell, meanwhile, hires a new farmhand, a guy named Joe Maxson. Bell also wrote several letters to the local sheriff's office at this point, complaining that while she kicked Lamphere off her property, he was still loitering in the woods around her property. Oh, shit. Yeah. She had spotted him a couple times near her house and near her barn, and she wanted the police to intervene. 
they said unless As you would yeah the police were kind of like well unless we catch him there's nothing we can do about it sorry yeah as the winter of 1908 gave way to spring, the drama between Belle and Lamphere increased. She finally had Lamphere arrested for trespassing, but he was only fined and held for a couple days before he was released from jail. Okay. She also tries to get Lamphere declared insane and a menace, but that fails as well. By the time March rolled around, most of her neighbors and the local Laporte authorities knew that Lamphere was pretty much out to get poor Belle Gunnis. Oh, of course. He was gunning for Gunnis. Gunning for Gunnis. <laughs> It was also in March that Andrew Helligan's brother, Asley, who had been worried over his brother's disappearance, finally discovered a clue on his brother's farm. A bundle of letters from a widow in Laporte, Indiana. Oh, So wow. basically, it was winter in South Dakota when his brother left. He didn't tell anyone, and his brother notices that no one's working the farm in the spring. So he goes to check it out, and that's when he finds these letters. Asley becomes suspicious as he reads through these letters, and he's concerned his brother may have fallen victim to a con woman. Because he comes across these letters that urge Andrew to visit quickly, bring money, visit Indiana in secret, that sort of thing. Okay. So, Asley decides to write Belle a letter to see if she knows what happened to his brother. Belle writes back and says she wasn't sure where Andrew was. He had left the farm several weeks ago to visit Chicago on business. She claims that a while after that, she received a letter from Andrew saying he was still in Chicago and he was looking for a relative. She also speculates in her letter that perhaps he even went back to Norway to help this relative. Now, Asley doubts her story because he knew they didn't have any relatives in Chicago and it would be totally out of character for his brother to up and go back to the home country without telling him. Oh, of course. So he prepares to travel to the port once the weather breaks and speak to the local authorities himself. Meanwhile, Belle visits her lawyer's office in the port in late April. She's there to update her will. Yeah. Basically, she's super concerned about Lamphere, she tells her lawyer, speculating that he might hurt her or her children. She even goes so far as to tell her lawyer, quote, that fool is going to kill me and burn down my house. Oh, shit. So she basically updates her will to make greater provisions for her kids. Yeah. The very next day, April 28th, 1908, the new farmhand, Joe Maxson, awoke to the smell of smoke and found Bell's farmhouse engulfed in flames. Oh, well. That was quick. That was very quick after saying these things. Mm-hmm. I mean, she had been saying for months that, like, Lamphere was basically harassing her and kept, like, yeah. showing up at her place. So that part adds up, mm-hmm. but, I mean, that seems staged yeah, to a me. Little, a little bit. So Maxon, being the normal, like, good guy that most people are, attempts to rescue Belle and her children. He tries to break into the house with an axe. He can't do it. He finally manages to get the door open, but the smoke and heat are so overwhelming at that point, he can't go inside. So he basically watches the house burn to the ground. After the flames are finally extinguished, uh, the authorities are on the scene and they make a pretty gruesome discovery in the basement. They find the badly burned bodies of Belle and her three children. (gasps) Well, I mean... Surprise. Yeah. But weirdly, Belle's body is missing her head. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the police are like, well, I'm pretty sure we know who did it, Lamfrey. Yeah. And they arrest him. Over the next week, Maxon and the local sheriff's deputies search through the remains of the farmhouse. They're looking for Bell's head to figure out what the hell Lamfrey did with it, and also so they could get final official identity confirmed for the body. Yeah, they just want to get a head on it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> However, after about a week of digging, they still can't find any 
indication that her head's in the ruins of the house. Because, spoiler alert. Well, I can either confirm or deny these suspicions, Eden. All right. Except for a couple more paragraphs. (laughs) (laughs) So the authorities and the press start to speculate that Lamfrey murdered Belle and her children. And he basically chopped off her head as like one final act of revenge. Just a little fuck you. Yeah, because the jilted lovers like a little fuck you. And then he set the house on fire to cover his crimes. Uh, When Ansley Helgillian reads about the fire in South Dakota, he immediately leaves for Laporte. He arrives on May 4th and he goes straight to the sheriff. He's hoping to get answers about what happened to Andrew. Mm -hmm. The sheriff says, I haven't seen your brother and no one's reported him missing. But if you think he was staying with Belle Gunnis, there's been an accident and the house is burned down and she's dead. If you want to go out to the farmhouse and look through their debris to try to find clues about what happened to your brother, you're more than welcome to. I have deputies out there right now. Okay. So Asley spends two days digging through the rubble with Maxon and the sheriff deputies. And he still doesn't find anything. And he's just about to give up and go home to South Dakota when he stops because he still has what he describes as this sinking feeling of dread. Like he yeah. knows his brother's here. He knows something bad happened to his brother here. So he asks Maxon, hey, is there anywhere on the farm that may have been dug up over winter or spring, like excavated a new trench dug somewhere, that sort of thing? Yeah. Maxon says no, but right before she died, Belle had asked him to level off some depressions in the hog pen. Basically, over the winter, yeah, uh, he explained that Belle had buried trash there because it was you know soft ground during the winter, and that in the spring thaw, the ground had sunk, and she had wanted that ground leveled off in the pig pen so that the pigs wouldn't you know hurt themselves, yeah. that sort of thing. Well. Asley thinks, that's super weird. Let me check out this hog pen. So he goes out there and he starts to dig at one of the depressions. After only a foot or two, he discovers an oozing, putrid smelling potato sack. Oh, great. He opens that's the sack. That's not a very nice way to describe the Irish. I hope you know. <laughs> okay, I'll say gunny sack, which is the same thing as a potato sack that makes you feel better. And it kind of goes with her last name. Yes. So he finds this oozing, putrid smelling gunny sack and he opens it. And he discovers the hands, feet, and head of his brother, Andrew, which is fucking horrible. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, awful. The sheriff immediately orders the rest of the hog pen dug up. They discover five more gunny sacks that first day, and then six more the next day. On the third day, they just stopped counting, and they continued to find remains that were all the same. Covered in quicklime and buried hurriedly in gunny sacks. The quicklime they figured was there to help aid in the decomposition of the bodies. Oh, yeah. As they pull more sacks out, they discover that they contain various body parts. Although most of them are too badly decayed to identify, they do notice that all of them appear to be butchered in the same meticulous style. The heads have been removed. The arms had been severed at the shoulders. Legs chopped off at the knee. It was disturbingly similar to the way that a hog farmer would prepare a pig for a butcher. Yeah. The coroner was able to identify blunt force trauma and large gashes in most of the skulls that they found. And they also were able to find traces of strychnine in some of the soft tissues that remained. Wow. The authorities turned to Lamfrey and asked him what the hell happened. He maintains his innocence. He says, I have no idea how those people ended up in that hog pen. She did set him up pretty nicely, though. I mean, 
And I mean, that's not even a spoiler alert because you started this off with this is the story of Del Gunnar. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> so he even goes so far as to admit that while he was technically in the woods by the Gunnis's farm the morning of the fire, he didn't set it and he didn't report it either because he didn't want to go to the sheriff and be like, hey, there's a fire out here for fear that they would blame him for it. Which happened anyway, so yep. it didn't really matter. Didn't matter. Sorry. This left the authorities in a super sticky situation. They had an arson and murder suspect in custody, Lamprey, who may or may not have killed Bell Gunnis, who may or may not have been a vicious serial killer. But they also had more than a dozen murder victims discovered on the farm. So what do you do? Do you bring this guy to trial and try to try him for stopping a poor widow who turns out to be a vicious serial killer? Mm. Meanwhile, Belle Gunness has been presumed dead, even though they still haven't found her head, so she still can't be conclusively identified, which means that there could still be a public menace out and about. You're not dead without a head. <laughs> not dead without a head, it's true. So authorities decide, you know what, let's concentrate on prosecuting Lamphere for arson and the murder of the Gunness family for now. Meanwhile, the papers are having a field day. Of course they are. Like, how could you not, right? They have so many stories published daily about Belle's murderous scheme. They say that she would lure wealthy men to her farm with her personal ad, murder them, and then dispose of the bodies in the hog pen. They dub her the Indiana Ogress, or the female Bluebeard. It's kind of a little reminiscent of um, Lavinia Fisher. Yeah, yeah. Except she probably didn't do those things. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They, or I should say, they never found the bodies. Well, I mean, definitely doing like uh, that headline mm-hmm. makes like it sound female very... Female Bluebeard, right? Yeah. Reporters also printed crazy misinformation or accurate information, depending on what source you're looking at, from Belle's neighbors. They say that right before she died, a week or so of her death, she was looking for a live-in maid. They said that when they pulled the body that was supposedly Belle's from the burned wreckage of her house... It looked a little too oh, short and slim shit. to be Belle. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Okay. Because I was wondering, who is this headless body? It's not her, obviously. It may not have been Belle. Now, they also told reporters about the mysterious disappearance of her stepdaughter, Jenny, who years before, Belle had said, had gone to live with Peter Gunnis's relatives. That's what they all say. But then they discovered the skeletal remains of a girl about Jenny's age in the hog pen. Damn. Mm-hmm. Is this supposed to be the salacious ones, or is this accurate? Uh, that was accurate. They never actually were able to firmly identify it was Jenny's body, but they found a girl's body there, okay. too. And most intriguing of all, if that wasn't enough, Belle's new hired man, Maxon, said that Belle had returned from that day after visiting her lawyers the day before the fire. She brought home with her toys for her children and two gallons of kerosene. Convenient. How convenient. You know, the house is really cold this time of year. I just wanted to stock up. It's chilly. It's chilly April we're having. Now, all the media coverage led to tons of people visiting Laporte just to be kind of like gruesome tourists. Yeah, of course. As always happens. The ghoul squad always has to come. Of course. I read one statistic that said nearly 20,000 people visited the farm during the initial investigation. It was so popular that they started taking souvenirs from the soil. And reportedly, there were some enterprising vendors who went out to the Gunnis farm and sold ice cream, popcorn, and something creepily called Gunnis stew. Huh. Yeah. Did it have body parts floating around in it? I don't know, but I would not be in for a bowl of Gunnis stew. No, I don't think so either. That's a hard pass. So 
with all the speculation in the paper about how Bell might not be dead, it led to all kinds of reported sightings of Bell Gunness around well, the country. Right? That's normal. Uh, there were reports of her seen shopping in Chicago. Someone said they saw her on a train near Rochester, New York. Others reported seeing Bell Gunness walking down the streets of Sacramento, California. Meanwhile, where in the world is Carmen San Diego? It's <laughs> Bell Gunness. Where in the world is <laughs> Bell Gunness? Uh, meanwhile, Lamfrey was brought to trial, and there was enough circumstantial evidence for a jury to convict him of arson. After all, Bell had spent months destroying his reputation, and he was yeah. near the farm that morning. However, the coroner's report actually may have saved Lamfrey's life. The coroner discovered that the burned bodies of Bell's children actually contained strychnine, casting doubt on the prosecutor's assertion that Lamphere had murdered them. All right. That makes sense. Either way, Lamphere was definitely convicted of arson and sentenced to 21 years in prison. He, Wait, he was still... Yep, he, he was convicted of arson because oh, okay. there was enough circumstantial evidence to say he did it. Plus, I think there was a little bit of like authorities needed, somebody needed to pay for this. True, yeah. And it was easier for them to be like, nope, that's definitely Bell Gunness, and this is the guy who burnt down the house that may have killed her. This is what happens when your case kind of goes cold, mm -hmm. is you need someone to blame or else the media is going to go nuts. The people are going to go nuts. Yeah. So you find anyone you can, anyone that just looks good for it. Doesn't have to be correct. Mm-hmm. That, that's pretty much what I think happened to, to Lamfrey as well. Uh, he went to prison, and unfortunately, he only served one year before dying of tuberculosis. Oh, wow. Now, this is an other interesting detail that I found in a couple of different sources. They said that Lamfrey reportedly made a deathbed confession while he was in prison. He said that he had actually seen Bell murder Andrew Hillgillian, and then he helped her dispose of his body. He said that she was nervous about Helgillian's brother, who said that he wanted to come visit and talk to her about Andrew. Oh, shit. <laughs> Later, he attempted to blackmail Bell. She fired him and then began the smear campaign against him as retribution. Oh. Then she framed him for her own murder and went on the run. At least according to Lamfrey. She is one vindictive bitch. Mm -hmm. And given all of her past run-ins with authorities and like even like Peter Gunness's murder where she had the inquest and she basically said, oh, I don't know how we, it was just a tragic accident. Yeah. She, she seems like someone who's very good at plotting and playing the victim. For sure. Now, speculation about Belle Gunness's ultimate fate continues to this day. So much so that in 2008, the headless body that they found at her farm was exhumed and forensic anthropologists attempted to get a DNA test because they had found samples of Bell's DNA from preserved letters. Like, they basically were able to find viable DNA samples from, like, the envelopes and, like, the stamps that she had presumably licked. Yeah. Fortunately, the tests were inconclusive because the DNA from the body was too degraded. Damn. So, to this day, we still don't know if Bell Gunness died in that fire or if she got away with multiple murder. Holy shit. Okay. Right? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So, Eden, what do you think? I loved it. I mean, like I said, I thought about doing this story because I knew a little bit about mm -hmm. Belle Gunness because uh, she's, you know, pretty famous, I guess yes, you could say. for sure. Um, so, I mean, it's it was really interesting to hear the whole story. Yeah, I, I enjoyed doing it because I feel like the first time I heard about Belle Gunness, it was very much focused on, like, her children, like her killing her children. Yeah. And I don't think I really knew about all the other all the people other, she yeah. murdered. You normally hear one little bit and that's mm -hmm. what hoax you. And then you learn so much more. Yeah. Like last week with the damn 
charred bones being yeah, gravel. The gravel. Ugh. I never knew that part of the story. I just knew about the mannequins. That's why last week I was like, oh, I also have an alleged serial killer who also liked to decorate yeah. <laughs> their house and dispose of bodies on their property. <laughs> How convenient. Exactly. Uh, my sources for this week were Wikipedia, Mental Floss, anetv.com, biography.com, onlyinyourstate.com, and whenInYourState.com. I've never heard of whenInYourState.com. It's a spunky little website about things to do in your state. All right. So pretty much onlyinyourstate.com. I mean, I didn't say that, but I yes. didn't say it either. Someone else ran in here and but yeah, totally, said it on the microphone. Totally. Yeah. All right, I guess we can take a short break. Let's and take a little break, yeah. Come back and not have any gonna stew on our snack break. No gonna stew. <laughs> that is uh, something forbidden in this house. <laughs> All right, y'all. We'll see you in a little bit. All right, we're back. We're back. Um, I have something a little different this week. Ooh, I like different things. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Um, I hope everyone will enjoy it. What if they hate it, Eden? Uh, well, then they can just go fuck themselves. I don't care. All right, fair enough. No, I still, I'll still feel bad about it. Don't let me pretend to be tough. No, my feelings <laughs> get hurt quite easily when it comes to people not liking the stuff that I make. Um, so my story takes place in Mitchell, Indiana. It's in Lawrence County and has a population of 4,350 residents and an area of 3.60 square miles. Okay. It was built as a railroad town, uh, like a few others that we've come across. This railroad is what I believe is now the the Monon uh, walking trail that I had mentioned. Oh, yeah, the, last the episode. DNL trail or whatever. Yeah. So there was a north to south line that went from New Albany, Indiana to Chicago, Illinois that passed through Mitchell before it was a town. Okay. Uh, it was called the Chicago, Indianapolis, and Louisville Railroad at the time. Mitchell officially became a town in 1853, and by 1857, the east to west line was made and went from Cincinnati to St. Louis. Cool. So it was kind of like a little railroad hub town. Yeah. This town was named after a West Point graduate and surveyor of the town, Ormsby McKnight Mitchell, who spelled his last name with one L, but the town later changed it to two L's for, like, no reason at all, just because they wanted to. To be fancy? Yeah, just for shits and giggles from what I can gather. Other than a surveyor, he was also a professor at the University of Cincinnati, an astronomer, a lawyer, and later a major general for the Union in the American Civil War. So I guess he deserved to have a town name after him if he did all of that stuff. Uh, the town was incorporated in 1864 and became a city in 1907. The town is known for its Persimmon Festival, and it's the fourth most terrifying place in America. Uh, one, I fucking love persimmons, but I will not go there for that festival. It's the most ter- one of the most terrifying places in America. Oh, no. The, the, um, it's home to the fourth most terrifying place in America. Oh, so I can go get delicious persimmons and not get scared. Correct. You would just have to go to the place I'm about to talk about. The subject All right. of my story. Tell me more. It's called the Whispers Estate. I have heard the name before. Okay. You may think that this is just going to be another haunted house story, and it's going to start off that way. But I'll be approaching this one from another angle later in the story. Okay. The Whispers Estate was built in the late 1890s, so it's about as old as the house that I currently live in, as well as the house that I grew up in. 
I bring up house ages because a lot of my sources said different things, and I don't know how old your house is, Nicole, but normally when older houses like this one are on the market, the year built is normally just listed as either 1890 or 1900 because they just don't fucking know. Yeah, that's like my house. It says some sources say 1910, some say 1915 because it's easier. Yeah, they just write whatever. They're just like, I don't know, slap a year on there. Like it's old. Yeah. So pretty sure that's the case with this one too. (laughs) The history of this house is actually hard to come by source-wise, so I hope that I do a decent job of telling this story. House is done in a Victorian style, but it's not as ostentatious as some of the Victorian homes that you see with the bright colors. I think those are referred to as painted ladies, if I'm correct. Yeah. Um, Which sounds like another name for a sex worker, but that's just me. Fancy painted ladies. I also used to think that my mom would talk about how she loved painted ladies all the time. It would always give me a pause. Yeah. And then she'd point to her dollhouse and I'm like, oh, oh that. gotcha, gotcha. Not someone on the corner. Gotcha. Okay. Because I mean, fancy lady was another term at one point. <laughs> so this one is almost plain on the outside as far as the actual home goes. It does have a really nice veranda with rocking chairs and a porch swing. And it looks like the facade is like a pale blue or maybe gray siding. In another picture, the outside looked white, so I have no idea what color this house is or if it's like that damn dress or that sneaker that keep changing (laughs) color on you. So it does have a really nice wrought iron gate around the property, which I am definitely a sucker for. There's also angel statues, which I believe to be out front. I mean, sometimes they're creepy. More often than not, they're creepy. Other times they're nice, but... Angel statues are definitely a little bit creepy. Yeah. I know they're not meant to be, but somehow that's how they come off. Well, it's kind of like when someone buys like those cement lions to put outside their house. Oh, yeah. I'm like, who are you fooling? Exactly. Yeah. So inside the home, from what I was able to see, the main entryway and hallway are this really nice dark red, and you're just surrounded by all this beautiful dark stained wood. Very um, Victorian. Yeah. It's very pretty, and I'll get into my other thoughts about it later when I reveal a possible twist. Mm. This place was for sale in January of 2020, and I think someone bought it because I couldn't find the listing when I went to look. I will definitely say this for Indiana. You guys have some nice houses for very cheap. Your housing market must be very good. Either that or uh, they just pay a lot less over there. I don't know. Um, so to give you an example, the Whispers estate was listed at only 130k. What? Yep. I could afford that. Yeah. Uh, that also included the furniture and ghosts, of course, but they don't factor into the price. Also, don't think just because it might be considered a stigmatized property that that's why the price is so low. Because I saw a bunch of nice houses in Indiana that were way bigger than my own for less than I bought mine for. I wonder if like the property taxes are crazy high. I don't know. Maybe. They always screw you somehow. Exactly. <laughs> if it sounds too good to be true, it, it probably, probably is. is. So the Whispers estate, however, uh, which was named so because of the whispering that can be heard inside the house coming from nowhere, by the way. What? Yeah. Wait, what? They named the house after the creepy ass whisper that happens? Yep. Um, I'm not comfortable with that. Yeah. A little bit awkward. Um, well, it's 3,700 square feet. It has four bedrooms. And two and a half baths. So I could be comfortable with that. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. The first residents of the house were a doctor and his family who also ran his practice out of the home. 
his name was Dr. George White, and his wife's name was Sarah. Don't quote me on the working from the home, though, because that may not have been him. That may have been the second owner, who was Dr. John Gibbons. Okay. And his wife, who was also named Sarah, according to the first half of the article that I read, but then I read more into it, and her name suddenly changed in the article to Jesse. Were you able to see if any other sources named the Everyone wife? else called her Jesse, so I'm assuming okay. she's Jesse. <laughs> Those are very similar things to doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, so it could have been either doctor who actually had his office in the house or both of them. Who knows? The Gibbons family bought the place between 1899 and 1901. So it would seem that maybe this place was somehow already haunted with how fast the first owners moved out. Either that or they just get bored easily. John and Sarah, or Jesse, take your pick, Gibbons, apparently couldn't have children of their own, but they did desperately want kids, so they would adopt orphans or children who were abandoned by their biological parents. That's sweet of them. Yeah. One such child was a 10-year-old girl named Rachel. I don't know how long she lived with them for, but she did die in the house. Mm. Uh, It happened on Christmas Eve when she accidentally started a fire in the parlor and was so badly burned that she was dead um, two days later. That's awful. There's another one of their adopted children that died in the house as well. Her name was Elizabeth, and she was only 10 months old. She passed away from unknown causes in the master bedroom of the house. (laughs) Jesse also died in the house, again in the master bedroom that probably no one should use at this point. Um... She contracted double pneumonia and passed away from that illness. Wow. I do know for sure that Dr. Gibbons did use the rooms on the first floor for his medical practice, and because of medical science being what it was at the turn of the century, it's suspected that more than a few patients have also died in this house, as he used it for his office for around 26 years. And yes, there was a morgue in the house as well. This place has seen its fair share of residents come and go over the years, and there are two other deaths that we know for sure during the 50s and 60s. Is this starting to sound like the murder house? Kind of. American Horror Story. (laughs) Maybe they got it from here. Who knows? Um, There was a man who lived in the house and died in the upstairs bathroom, as well as a boy who fell from the front staircase. I swear at this point we have so many ghost children roaming these halls that they need to open a damn daycare. Now, the next bit of information I'm going to throw at you, I'm very skeptical of, but before anyone says anything, I'm not saying all psychics are frauds by any means, and I think we've discussed this on the show before when talking about the Fox sisters or something on a refuel. Uh, There are real psychics out there. I've had psychic readings that I believe were authentic. I myself have some psychic ability, but there are a lot of phonies out there, and I think this next part is sensationalism at its best. There are reportedly four graves on the ground, which sounds legit enough. But according to some psychics, they say there's also a mass grave or a pit grave, as my source referred to it, which houses, quote, amputated limbs, internal organs, and aborted fetuses, end quote. Yeah, it seems pretty sensational. Yeah, it's possible, but it sounds like something to get people to go there as this place is open strictly as a haunted house these days. Basically, you can just spend the night ghost hunting. They ran it out. Gotcha. This place was also turned into apartments at one time, as well as a bed and breakfast. 
Well, that's what we know about the history, so we'll move right along to the ghost before I go into my possible twist ending of this tale. Okay. The first signs of a haunting, that we know about anyway, occurred when the 2006 owner of the property began doing renovations on the place, which we know to be a big thing that pisses off some spirits, so that might be the reason things got stirred up there, but there have been claims for some from some owners and visitors that the house itself is actually alive. What? Yeah. That the house is a living, breathing thing. And that's why it whispers. Yes. And that's why when the renovation started, it got angry. Yep. Exactly. So, if that wasn't creepy enough. Uh, yeah, I'm still creeped out by it. Yeah. Let's talk ghost baby daycare again for a minute. First, in the master bedroom, baby Elizabeth's spirit is said to be hanging around still. The room sometimes smells like baby powder, and guests have heard a baby crying throughout the house. Ooh. Rachel is a major spirit worth mentioning in this place. A lot of people say they've seen her. People hear footsteps of a child and say it's probably her. She'll play with toys, and people will even bring her stuff to play with sometimes. She's also known to talk or sing. Wow. Jessie's spirit also haunts the master bedroom, and people have heard coughing from her pneumonia, uh, or they themselves cough a lot in that room while trying to sleep. Uh, they also feel like they can't breathe or feel like someone is sitting on their chest. I don't like that one bit. Nope, we never like that one, Mm -mm. but it happens a lot. Uh, People hear a lot of noises in this place. They hear everything from talking, singing, screaming, whispering, like the name of the house, and bizarrely enough, kissing sounds. That's gross. Yeah, I don't like that one. Weird. Uh -uh. Mm -mm. Uh-uh. Some more sinister sounds have also been heard, like growling. (gasps) Yep. There's also a lot of smells in this house. Okay. There's, of course, the baby powder, which I mentioned earlier, but tobacco can also be smelled in here, along with cologne or perfume. Uh, Disgusting smells are also not uncommon, such as cabbage or meat that's gone rancid, as well as dirty bandages. Mm, Gross. Add growling and rancid meat together, and that spells demons, so you might want to watch out for that. Ugh. Uh, there's said to be some sort of spiritual vortex as well that goes throughout the house and up to the attic, and the attic is said to be hella haunted. This one's creepy because people that sleep up there always seem to have terrible nightmares and say they hear the sounds of someone trying to get into their room with them. Oh, no. No. Yep. Uh-uh. Mm-mm. Yeah, I would not stay in the attic. If I was a bed and breakfast guest, I would demand my money back. Oh, hell yeah. Mm-mm. I'll also add that slamming doors and jiggling doorknobs are pretty commonplace for this house as well. There's a shadow entity called Big Black who haunts the house, and psychics say this is an inhuman entity. Um, so not necessarily a demon, but something that was never truly human. It can be seen throughout the house, but mostly in the rooms where the doctor used to treat patients. He's not a very friendly spirit, and the owner said Big Black pushed him down the attic stairs once. Gross. Like, oh. Yeah, it's yeah, not fun. I don't want to run into that. Mm-mm. Also in the attic, the room seems to get an unnaturally, like, it gets unnaturally dark in there at times. And things slither across the floor without explanation. Nope, nope. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. not doing it. Mm-mm. Never going in that attic. Sorry. That literally sounds like the worst place we've talked about in a long time. Yeah, I know. Like, I don't. Mm-mm. Right up there with Trans Allegheny Lunatic yeah. Asylum. It's like, can you get the Christmas tree out of there? No. No. We're no going to buy a new Christmas tree. Everything up there is just dead to us now. I told you not to put it up there. <laughs> so, um, if you use the doctor's bathroom, be prepared for things to get a little shaky. What? Uh, is that an earthquake? No, it's Ramon. <laughs> I mean ghosts. Ghosts. <laughs> uh, people have felt massive tremors in this room with no explanation. Weird. Like it feels like a freaking earthquake when you're sitting on the toilet and then you get up and it's fine. I'm not just talking like your bowels are that bad. I'm talking like the room actually shakes. Mm. And it's apparently very easy to get EVP in this house as well. I didn't come across any, but I heard that a lot of people get EVP here. Women who go here have a harder time of things, it would seem, as it has been reported that Dr. Gibbons might just be a pervert or something because he whispers in girls' ears and gropes them. Gross. Yeah. Maybe he's just giving you a breast exam. Who knows? Inappropriate. He was a doctor. Inappropriate. But you need to trust him because he's a doctor, remember? Mm-mm. So, speaking of bad touching, people have been touched, scratched, and pushed before in here. Things also move around in this house, and beds and couches have been known to shake violently. Random knocking can also be heard, which it's an old house, so it might be pipes. Who that's knows? fair. That's fair. Uh, people have apparently had their fingers pulled, so maybe there's the ghost of someone's flatulent grandpa. <laughs> um, people have also apparently left this place physically scarred, and the owner when one woman went on a tour, said that he had a scar over his eye, which was given to him by Big Black. What? Yeah. Sell that house. Exactly. If people set up camcorders in the house and set them down to record when they aren't in the room, they come back and the cameras have been moved. Uh, There were a few other really suspect claims that I did leave out because, again, I think some of this is sensationalized, Mm -hmm. which brings us to my twist ending. There's a good chance that this place isn't really haunted and it's an elaborate hoax put on by the owner to make some money. Really? Yep. TripAdvisor always comes up when I do my research. Sometimes it has some good stories. Other times it has absolutely nothing. This time I found a lot of polarizing reviews. Hmm. Um, literally every other review said it was completely fake while the next one said the person who went there was a skeptic and left a believer. So it was literally like every other one was different. Wow. That's really hot and cold. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I noticed, cause I did watch a documentary, um, well, I watched the beginning of it before I got bored and then turned it off. So maybe <laughs> like 10 minutes or so of it. Um, but they put like all these creepy dolls like around and they like put all this other stuff to make it seem more creepy than it is too, yeah, I to I think. Like heighten it. Yes, exactly. Um, which I mean, not a bad way to go about things, but it's not completely genuine either. Um, one reviewer said it's absolutely without a doubt a sham. He apparently lived in the house back when it was still apartments and never had a single experience in his life. Um, another reviewer said that they booked the house for a sleepover slash ghost hunt, and they said the staff seemed overly theatrical and told them stories of what happened in the house that seemed very forced. Um, they said that all the doorknobs and latch strikes 
were loose and would make noise when anyone walked in the house. So that's how you get the rattling doorknob effect. They heard some footsteps when supposedly alone in the house, and they went to investigate and caught one of the employees sneaking around. When asked what they were doing, the employee allegedly said, I was just going to see if you had any questions. Wow. Yeah. Um, According to the reviewer, the employee was nowhere near them in the house at the time, too. Like, not going toward where they were, nothing. Yeah, they're just walking just around. Just walking around to make noise. Um, Someone else said that, like, someone was walking outside with a dog so they could get the growling, stuff like that. Um, There's also quite a few reviews that said the owner and staff were rude and unprofessional. <laughs> Uh, one reviewer said uh, she had been there a few times and really liked it, but wouldn't go back again after she tried to schedule a stay with them, uh, and they never called her back. Uh, she spoke to the manager about it, and he told her he wasn't Walmart and didn't have to listen to her problems, called her pissy and a bitch before hanging up on her. I don't know if she was being a Karen or not, but still, that's not how you run a business. Yeah, that, Yeah, that's hard to tell if it's like disgruntled or if it's like a genuine experience absolutely yeah um there were several people whose reviews stated that there aren't even any records of the fire that took rachel's life nor is there a record for rachel or a grave for her on the property like there is for the doctor Hmm. Uh, a lot of reviewers also pointed out that the place was not haunted before the current and now previous i guess owner had a hold of it in 2006 interesting um yeah very very strange um i know i said before about the renovations stirring stuff up but remember it had been used for apartments and a bed and breakfast and no one reported a haunting then and it would have had to be renovated for both of those things that's what that's immediately where my my went to and you're like the one review is from somebody who lived one of the apartments yeah it's like well it's a house so if it's an apartment then you have to do some reno exactly yeah because you need to break down things into smaller locations make sure everything has a bath you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um Unless you do one of those weird apartment buildings that it's like, you all share this bathroom. Yeah, it's like a co-op or whatever. Don't think so. (laughs) Um, Either way, I don't know if it's open for tours anymore as it was up for sale earlier in the year. So, I don't know. But what do you think, Nicole? Is this place haunted or is it all made up? Oh, man. It's tough, right? Without going there to, to know. But I think it's one of those situations where time will tell. If the new owners open it up for haunted tours and things like that, True. then I think that would be more of an indication that perhaps there is something going on there. However, it does seem a little too good to be true. Exactly. There's so much activity, so much variety of activity, yeah. so many spirits. So much going on. Yeah. And I mean, there were reviews that said the and the opposite of those reviews as well. They said that the uh, the owners were, or the tour guides or whoever were very much like about debunking everything about mm-hmm. saying, well, this, we learned that this wasn't real or whatever. This was investigated and this turned out to be false or whatever. Yeah. So who knows? I mean, that's an interesting strategy to make the things that like. Exactly. Cause how do you promote like you're more um, authentic than you are by saying, Oh, well there's this, but we realized it was this being yeah. fake honest about things. Yes, exactly. I don't know. I, I would still go for persimmons. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would like to check out this house and just see what I think personally. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I don't know. It just seems a little too much. Yeah. 
I'm always suspicious of things where it's like everything under the sun happens. Exactly. So, I mean, like, I'm glad that I looked at the TripAdvisor reviews or I would have never been able to take this angle on it, you know? Yeah. Um, so, my sources were Wikipedia for my intro, Realtor.com, TripAdvisor.com, Wave3.com, uh, LiveSciFi.tv, uh, GreensburgDailyNews.com, GhostResearch.org, and a clip from a documentary called When the Walls Talk, The Whispers Estate Documentary. Um, yeah. So that's that i also wanted to add that a lot of people in town as well they were just like this place wasn't really a thing until it opened as a haunted attraction <laughs> like no one heard anything about the whispers estate until yeah it became an attraction like i lived there for 26 years and we never heard anything about that house interesting yeah. hmm. all right i guess it's our show yeah uh i enjoyed it I hope y'all did too. Yes, I did. If you'd like to drop us a line, you can do that by reaching out to us via email. Our email address is roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can also go to our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. You can stop by our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram. We are Roadside Horror Show. And on Twitter, we are Roadside Horror. Um, go ahead and give us a review and like us if you want. Um, on your favorite podcatcher because we would love the exposure it helps us just be seen more so we would really appreciate it yeah and you can always tell everyone you know any way you can absolutely i'd like to thank e massey for our awesome intro and outro music and yox rocks design for our fantastic logo and until next time guys creep, creep on, on creeping, creeping on, on.